Father in heaven, and our Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit. We do love you and acknowledge you as our God. And we pray that in this hour now that we have together, you'll be here to make our hearts wide-eyed to the glory that is in you and in the things you've made to reflect back to you. Help us, Lord, to be candid and to be humble and teachable and to be sensitive to each other and be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might receive everything there is for us in your word and in each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm sorry I should begin by a brief occasion to ask questions that were left over from last night. So, what's lingering that you'd like to ask now that you got formulated and you couldn't formulate last night? What? Well, I've never posed the question just like that. I'm not sure. Um, it's a good question because I think our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt and that there are a lot of people going through the motions in church enjoying it, but probably not all that excited about who God is. Uh, suppose the, the answer, how can you know whether the joy that you're experiencing in acts of worship is joy in God rather than in an inherited form or comfortable pew or a neat tune or something? I, I suppose we simply have to periodically test ourselves, t examine our own motives and say, now, when I sing that song that we just sang, that I enjoyed a lot, do I enjoy that because there wells up in me that combination of girls high part and guys low part mingling to give me such great pleasure? Or am I enjoying it because the Holy Spirit is my guide and I love to tell him that? And that Jesus is my Lord and I love to say it. And uh, I guess ultimately there's no, there's no litmus paper, there's no spiritual litmus paper that we can dip into anything and pull it out and say, oh, boosh, I'm delighting in God. It's a, it's a personal and subjective thing. I love, I really like that tune. There's no getting away from it. That mm. tune gives me pleasure. And I think if I sang that song again, I'd probably worship better at it. Because I, I was trying so hard to get the tune right that I couldn't focus quite as clearly on the, on the message, which is why we need to learn songs really well. Then they can become like old slippers. We can forget the mechanics and, and set our minds to God. But in answer to your question, all I can say is examine yourself and, and ask yourself the question, Am, is, is the Holy Spirit and his holiness a delight to me? Is Jesus and his lordship 
a delight to me? Is God's fatherhood a delight to me? And answer them as honestly as you can. If you feel some uncertainty about it, then just pray and ask God to make your heart feel certain about it. I think we're all in that kind of ambiguity because we're sinners. That uh, we'll, we, we're probably, except in rare, wonderful moments, divided people. We're always able to kind of stand outside ourselves and watch ourselves worshiping and say, hmm, you think you're really completely sincere right now? And what we, what we crave is that moment when, when we, we are not even self-conscious, but a holy God conscious. And those are rare moments, but that's our goal. That's the best I can do. Okay, why don't we all look at James 4? James develops a picture here which I think is really helpful for the Christian leader. Really helps avoid the mistake of somebody walking out of these meetings and say, Piper said it was just fine to, uh, to, to do my own thing and make myself happy any way I please. James is a good warning against that misunderstanding of Christian hedonism, but I think he'll show himself to be a Christian hedonist here. Let's, let's start right at the beginning. Read through verse 4. Ver, verse 1. What causes wars and what causes fightings among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? In other words, you have uh, some person desires one thing and some person desires another and one person gets frustrated and then well, verse 2 says what happens. You desire and do not have so you kill. In other words, if your desires get crossed, you might get angry enough to kill. And you covet, that is your desire again, and cannot obtain, so you fight. If your desires get crossed, you sometimes fight, wage war, try to get what you want, or just lash out and get resentment, or revenge, or nothing else. You do not have, because you don't ask, and you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions or your desires, or your pleasures. Yeah, here's what he criticizes. The RSV says, unfaithful creatures. What is another translation? Adulteresses. That's a literal one. You are adulteresses. Adulteresses. Unfaithful creatures. Do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is in vain the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he made to dwell in us. Okay, now get the picture. We who uh, are trying to be a friend of the world and, and uh, get things to spend on our passions or satisfy our pleasures are called adulteresses. Now, to have an adulteress, to be an adulteress, you've got to be married and then forsake your partner. Now, who is, who is the husband? We are the adulteresses. God is the husband. And we are being called adulteresses because we're going after something else than God to satisfy our passions, namely what? Yeah, friendship of the world. Verse, uh, verse 4. Do you not know my wife that if you, if you want to be a friend with the world, you, you're going to turn me into your enemy. I'm your husband. I want your love. 
I want you to slake your hunger for satisfaction on me. And where are you going to get it? You're going to the world. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't you know I am jealous of your affections? I yearn over the spirit that I made to dwell in you. I want you for myself 100%. So, isn't the answer to the question, the way it fits into Christian hedonism, is God is upset at his wife, not because his wife is a hedonist, but because his wife is going after other lovers and not coming to him. And he would like very much for her to come to him for the satisfaction of her pleasures. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. I want to give. But you're asking. Now here's, here's the real ugliness of the, of the adultery here. Picture an adulterous situation. Not just where the wife is cheating on her husband. But where she's asking the husband to provide the cheater. In other words, she's saying to her husband, you don't satisfy me anymore. So you get me somebody else and supply my needs. And that's what we do when we pray and ask God to supply us with some worldly need rather than asking for him to help us enjoy him. So he took... Christian hedonism is radically God-centered. Uh, the first four, all of that is Christian Christian I have that first four by Christian who were about me. I have the reality. She really wanted to jump on my back. Now, Lord, don't you know that Christ being found the world of being an enemy to God? I never took a job in my relationship to her. Now, if there's one, if there's one something, that you would give me that maybe will put my mind in rest now, but I don't feel so hard with my relationship. Yes, there is. First of all, the meaning of friendship here, friendship with the world, doesn't have anything to do with being a friend to an unbeliever. What this friendship with the world means is, is desiring satisfaction from the world rather than satisfaction from God. That isn't, that isn't the goal of forming friends with unbelievers. In other words, we're not saying to God, I'm a friend to this unbeliever because you don't meet my needs. Quite the contrary. You meet my needs so fully, I'd like very much to demonstrate that in this friendship. And here's another, here's another the best place to go is to Jesus' life. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Precisely because he hobnobbed around with these people in order to win them. I, just don't pay any attention to people that talk like that. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the spirit of Christ in them. They are so bent on separatism that they can't minister. They don't have this outflowing love that Christ has. That's a brand of Christianity that has done lots of hurt. And so you should worry about them. Try to love them anyway. But there's a whole, there's a whole branch of the church that, that majors on separatism. 
and uh, to the exclusion of being able to minister effectively to a wide spectrum of people. Okay. microwave oven for an example. Um, Noelle and I, about four years ago, asked ourselves the question, is it, is it right to, to want to have and to get a microwave oven? And uh, we thought and prayed a long time about whether that's a good use of money. And, and what we did, and the process that you go through is you take your priorities in life and try to measure them against the scripture and test to see what's biblical. You look for principles. You look for needs around you. You look for other things you might be spending that money on. You look for the benefits that might come from it or the benefits that might come from something else. And then you pray and ask God to help you sort out all these pros and cons. And then finally you just make a decision. Hopefully the Lord gives you peace in one of those decisions. And, uh, and we decided to get one. And the reason was that my grandmother was living with us for those two years and had to have a different meal from us every time. And she's my grandmother and her children are all dead. I felt obligation to take her. And yet Noel bore the whole burden of caring for her, helping her bathe, helping her wash her hair, helping her keep clean, making all her meals. And it was not her relative even. And I felt, as a husband, responsible that I couldn't force my, my wife to make six meals a day. Uh, and therefore, that was, you know, as an example of the kind of decision-making process I went through to justify that when people were starving in China and Africa and other places. So, you'd have to do the same thing with a piano, wouldn't you? And ask, what's the function of music in your life? What's, what's, the, what's the ministry of music? What, what's the value of, of music? And work it out. I suppose there is some false guilt about things. We live in a, a Bethel anyway. I suppose if you've been through Bethel in the last five or six years, you've been sensitized to great needs in the world and, and lifestyle issues and so on. And I'm not sure that that's a... I mean, I'm sure it's not a bad thing to have been... have our consciences made very sensitive to whether we, what we buy is necessary. I think that's good. I think to have some of those pangs of conscience is very helpful, and we ought not to brush those aside. 
And I think you, you answered your own question. God, God ought to be able to give us peace about the decisions we make so that we don't chew ourselves out. In fact, I, I, one of the principles I'm going to mention in relation to sexual matters is that uh, while conscience isn't necessarily an infallible guide on telling you what you should do, it is, it is a very good guide that you should never act against. I think that's a biblical principle. Even if your conscience is distorted, to act against it is sin. The who thinks it is sin and does it is sin. Uh, now, should we move into the new unit, or do you have something else put right on the front burner that needs to get off? Yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the question is, is there ever a time we should do anything something out of a sense of duty or responsibility? The chief duty of man is to be happy. So it's easy to answer that question hedonistically. C.S. Lewis says, as you know, it is the it is the duty of every Christian to be as happy as he can. So, duty is not a bad word in my vocabulary. Because I, if you believe in a God who has a right to tell you what to do, and I believe God has every right to tell us what to do, then I believe in duty. Duty is doing what you ought to do. I simply want to say, it's never, it's never the end of our search for holiness and for growth when we're only acting out of a sense of oughtness. We ought to make it our aim to act out of a sense of delight in what's right as well as oughtness. If the delight isn't there, we talked about that twice last night, then you probably should go ahead, repent that it's not there, ask God to put it there, and go ahead and do what you have the power to do. In as much as it lies within you, Paul said, live at peace with all men, implying that sometimes it doesn't lie within you as much as it does other times to live at peace with all men. So yes, do what you know is right to do, whether you feel like it or not. But don't let that be the goal of your life, to live that kind of split existence. Make the goal of your life to love to do what's right. And we'll never arrive at that completely in this life, but we, we get well along the way, I think, and prepare ourselves for heaven, which is going to be just like that, doing what's right gladly all the time. When You, you know, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. That little phrase, as it is in heaven, ought to stop you and make you ponder a lot. How is the will of God done in heaven? You ever ask yourself, how is the will of God done in heaven? We're supposed to do it on earth as it's done in heaven. Well, it's done very gladly in heaven, I'll have you know. Nobody begrudges doing the will of God in heaven. No angel has to grit his teeth to to obey God. He is on the wing when he hears the first word. That's the way we we pray. We ask God, help me do your will the way it's being done in heaven. Namely, 100% without a divided heart. The question we want to raise this morning is, why did God create sexual desire? And I want to look at one text just very briefly and then another one in, in more detail. The first one is Genesis 1. I want to give two answers to the question that I've been able to find in the Bible. You may know more. I've only been able to find these two. 
Let's read Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves. Now, I have to just infer something from this text, because it isn't explicit, but I think you'll agree. God's desire in creating man, male and female, among other things, is that the world get filled with people. God wants a people-filled earth. And that means he made them so that they can procreate. And I presume that since procreation follows so naturally upon the fulfillment of sexual gratification in sexual intercourse, that therefore this strong desire for sexual intercourse has one of its aims to be procreation and filling of the earth. So my first answer to the question, why did God create sexual desire, would be to make sure his world got filled with people. You want to raise a question about that first answer? I don't think that's an adequate answer. Yeah, once the earth gets full, I don't think I don't think uh, God's purpose is satisfied. So that's why uh, you got two possibilities then. One, the the function of sexual desire is over and we shouldn't have it anymore. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, you close up shop. Take a shot or something. Uh, the, the other possibility is that there's another answer to the question why he created it. So that purpose is now fulfilled and not It's fulfilled. Well, I think, I think it's fulfilled. Um, I think there are enough people in the world to, to, to uh, satisfy God's intention. Yes. In other words... Uh, if you're asking me, what what I think about how many children you should have, for example, that question is a lot more complicated than are there enough people on the earth right now. But maybe you're not asking that, and I shouldn't bother going into that. <laughs> um, I'll I'll tell you what I think in general about about uh, family planning. Um, one, it, it obviously, is I don't think wrong to just reproduce yourself, you know, to duplicate yourself and have two children. Um, but the other reason, I don't think it would be wrong for a Christian to have a larger family either because the burden of the earth is not simply strained by numbers of people, it's strained by certain kinds of people, and it's alleviated by certain kinds of people. And if a Christian really believes that he's going to rear his children to be need-meeting, people-saving, earth-helping people, 
then five of those might be a lot more valuable to have on the earth than none uh, uh, might be more valuable to have on the earth than if he'd had no, no children. In other words, if he doesn't burden the earth with any eaters, well, he doesn't cause the earth any problem, but neither does he do it any good outright. If he burdens the earth with five eaters who also are producers, helpers, innovators, creators, lovers, then he's done a great service to the earth. So, that, it's just not so simple as to count. You just can't count. You've got to take quality too. <laughs> yes, you are taking I'm willing to take that chance. And because it, no, it's, you see, all, all chances, all chances function in terms of probabilities. So, if you ask me, what do I think the probabilities are that given what I know about my wife, what I know about myself, and what I know about the promises of the Scripture and the power of God, what are the probabilities that my three sons are going to be a lousy burden on this earth, or a great help to this earth, I would say the probabilities are high, very high, that they're going to be help. But I don't know that. I don't know that. But I'm willing to take that chance. If the probabilities were high, higher, that they were going to only cause more trouble than help in the earth, then I wouldn't. So we can think of chances, but not just uh, dice rolling chances. Special chances, you've got no you've got no probabilities that you can count on. Except laws of averages that never worked for me in rolling dice. But when you've got God at work, and when you've got promise in the scripture, when you've got a wife and a self that consider themselves capable parents, then it's not just mere chance. No. One of the reasons God created it in the beginning was to make sure the world got filled with people. And it's only been in the last, what, 20 years, 10 years, that anybody has thought that there are too many people on the earth and that that's a problem. And really, there aren't too many people on the earth. There are too many people for the, for the way food is being produced. If we, if we had different productive systems, different distribution systems, four billion people would be no problem. But, uh, that's not the case. It is a problem now because we don't have the right distribution procedures. So, so no, what I said does not imply that procreation has to be the end of sexual fulfillment. And I think it would be helpful now to look at the second answer from 1 Timothy. Chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter... Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing 
is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. What are the two abstinences at issue in this section? Food and marriage. Food and sexual relations in marriage. Now, what do you suppose whoever these these uh, what are they called here? There's somebody, some false teachers here in, in Ephesus where Timothy is writing to uh, called liars whose consciences are seared. What do you think they are thinking in forbidding marriage and telling people to abstain from certain foods? What's in their heads? Now, are you saying what Paul is thinking or what the, the false teachers are doing? You think they're doing this to cause trouble in the church? They think they're, they think they're causing trouble or doing people a favor? <laughs> Yeah, right. That may be what they're saying. They think they're being good little Christian hedonists and they're taking away everything that might compete with allegiance to God. I saw a hand back there. Did you want to say anything? And there was anything? Yeah. I was just going to say Yes. In other words, it, it could be that these people didn't think that uh, bodily, physical indulgence of any kind is good, it's bad to eat uh, things that may give too much pleasure, and especially it's good to avoid that most pleasurable of all things, the sexual event that accompanies marriage. So, don't marry and let's at least cut back on the foods we enjoy and not eat certain foods. Yeah, yeah. Avoid, avoid certain kinds of people might fall into the same category here in avoiding certain foods and avoiding marriage. I, I suspect there's a fairly sophisticated, I don't know whether you've heard the word Gnostic before, for that doctrine from the early church of people who thought that but the spirit is good, the body is evil. And therefore, indulgences of the body must be avoided. Keep it to an absolute minimum. Keep yourself alive, but that's all. It's only the spirit. As soon as we can be freed from the body, the better. Let the spirit soar into the, into the realms of, of the spirit. The body is bad. Therefore, food, sex, uh, and other things. If you ask a question, let's try to say it so that everybody can hear. Let me ask you another question about this. We'll be on this text now for quite a while, so I think we'll move through it and you'll have a chance to ask more questions. What do we learn from this text about the relationship between the conscience and sex? Verse 2. The conscience and the sex life. I think marriage here is involved in the sex life. What statements can you make? 
about the relationship between a con- our conscience and sex. There will be one statement. Positive or negative. Evidently, I suppose they were, their consciences are seared, and therefore they're calling for an abstinence. A- abstinence from marriage and certain foods. So apparently, a seared conscience, this is interesting, a seared conscience is not just a conscience that is hardened and feels no guilt, but a seared conscience seems to be just a very distorted conscience. So that they were condemning the uh, indulgence of sex in marriage and condemning the eating of certain foods. And Paul says, your conscience is seared. You don't know what's right and wrong according to your conscience. It's all screwy. So the statement I would make is that these people's conscience was a very lousy guide to what is right and wrong in the matter of sexuality. Now, I already told you what I wanted to say in addition to that, namely, while we should make the overarching statement that conscience is not an infallible guide in matters of sex or anything else, it's not an infallible guide. Nevertheless, Paul teaches in Romans 14, don't act against your conscience, because then you're not acting from faith, and whatsoever is not from faith is sin. If your conscience slays you for a a pondered activity, don't do it. Even if somebody has convinced you <clears throat> biblically that it's right, better to pray and try to get your conscience saved. Um, I'm not sure what you think about that. Um, are you thinking that you shouldn't do the law? Well, I know we won't do the law on the conscience, but uh, I'm not sure what you think about that. But, like, I am very conscious of my and I go a lot on my conscience. Not only just experiment, I use my conscience to guide what the perfect conscience is. If I go against my conscience, then I'm not going to Right. Yes. So, well, my conscience guides me too a lot. It puts a fence around me so that I avoid things that my conscience condemns. Now, the conscience also plays a function in positive decisions as well. But, I, I, for a believer, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, is the way to think about positive conscience. Uh, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Or you could say, let your conscience be transformed that you may be able to approve with your conscience what is the will of God was good, acceptable, and perfect. God does want us to become so like him in our thinking that we will very naturally set our approval on what's right and reject what's wrong. So that as we become more like Christ, our conscience will become a better and better guide. But as long as we're sinners, it's the word that's going to have the last say, the scriptural, biblical principles. And where the Bible is silent, then we're much more dependent on our conscience hopefully informed by many biblical principles. Okay, that's what I wanted, the general thing I wanted to say about conscience, Dan. Because, the reason I'm assuming it is because food, the eating of food, must have to do with uh, something physical. Why lump together food and marriage? 
That's, that's what struck me. Why live together? Don't eat this and don't get married. And the only reason I can think is that uh, what he has in view here in marriage is what the eating that marriage is, namely sexual pleasure and hunger. There's hunger and there's physical desire. Those, those seem to be the parallel here. If, and if you look at the, all of the 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus and ask who are these false teachers, you get the distinct impression they are Gnostics who think the body is evil, and therefore all physical pleasure should be avoided, and we should get rid of as much of that as possible. An, an indication of that is from Second Timothy, where uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2, they have swerved from the truth by holding that the resurrection is past already. Now, what, what that means is not that they thought that people had risen out of the tombs and gone to heaven already, but that the only resurrection there is is a spiritual resurrection and that our spirits, the spirits of the dead and the spirits of we who have died with Christ and risen again, have been united in the heavens with God and what happens to the body is neither here nor there. It's just evil and the sooner we can get rid of it, the better. So, for those two reasons, the linking together of food and marriage and the general impression that these are Gnostics who think the body is evil, I'm inclined to think that what he has in view in marriage is not a wholesome, platonic partnership, but marriage is where you go to have sex in, in that culture, mostly in ours too. So, I, I, if, if that's wrong, then almost everything I say today is going to be wrong. I really am basing what I have to say in these next verses on the fact that he's not just applying verses... Four, three and four to food, but also to marriage. I think that I could make stand what I have to say, even if he hadn't mentioned marriage here. In other words, we're really confronted with the same question with regard to food. Why did God make eating so fun? Why didn't he make it hard? It's the same problem. If, pleasure, if all pleasure confronts us with a competition with, with God, if every pleasure confronts us with the potential of idolatry, then the question is the same. Why did he make it that way? Why did God make so much pleasure in the world? The pleasure of fellowship, the pleasure of eating, the pleasure of exercise, the pleasure of beauty in the world, pleasure everywhere, as long as we're healthy and able to handle it. So, I think, I think the implication... The principles would be the same no matter what pleasure we were talking about. What's the answer to this question from the text? Um, why did God create sex and food according to this passage? Verse 3. What's the answer in verse 3? It's right there. It's pointing his day. Right. He created which foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So, that's my second answer. God created sex and food and whatever else gives pleasure that it may be received with thanks. Put it another way. God created pleasures in order to be thanked for them.
Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. Who? Whom did he create these for? Who? Christians? You all agree with that? It says everything that God created is good, but it doesn't say he created these things for everybody. What does it say in verse 3? Who did he create them for? For those who believe and know the truth. Who's that? That's believers. What two different things? just quoting Genesis 1 where one time after time he said and God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good after the whole creation was over and everything was laid out God looked on it and smiled and said good very good nothing wrong with this including sex and all the food and all the animals it's all good not to be rejected that's verse 4 so I don't see any problem at all between verse 3 and 4 they're answering two different questions and the question I have to write now is, who did he create these things for? And the answer he gives is, those who believe and know the truth. Yes? Then if God didn't create sex for the non-believer, right. he's married. Right. <laughs> That's pretty nice. Julie? <laughs> exactly. If his, purpose is, if his purpose in creating this wonderful thing is that he might be thanked by it, well, how could it be for anybody who wasn't bent on thanking? Mary? Hmm. Sure. Even though they're Sure. Because they're sinful beings. Hang on, hang on, Dad. Um, I want to ask you a question. Um, I wanted to ask you, okay, thank you. We're supposed to do this and do God's activities as well. And we're doing it for our pleasure, which is His pleasure. Aren't we really doing it for Him? You don't ever give thanks to anybody for something you don't enjoy, do you? I mean, somebody no, gives you a gift. No, that's not what I think. No, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'm agreeing with you. You're saying you get pleasure out of this, and therefore, give thanks back to God. This was so good and wonderful. I thank you for this gift. That, and then, and God looks down, and, and He's pleased by that. So that's why He made it, so that we would, when we are. That's why He made us over His pleasure. Yes, the pleasure He gets is when we thank Him for this. Oh. Okay. <laughs> See, that's that, that's only for believers. That's a good question. When God, when God appointed man to, to uh, fill the earth, he only wanted them to do that believingly. 
He only wanted them to do that in faith. He only wanted them to reproduce believers. He wanted the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Which is going to only happen if their believers reproduce. Now man has just completely botched this whole thing temporarily. And the earth is filled with people who could give a rip or could care less about whether God is thanked for anything because they don't even believe he's there. Or if he is, they don't think they're very dependent on him. Now, therefore, the question that I think is really simmering underneath is... Well, what are you saying about unbelieving marriages? Should, should unbelievers get married? Should, should unbelievers have sex and all that? And uh, the answer is, unbelievers shouldn't do anything that they do the way they do it. They shouldn't get out of bed in the morning the way they get out of bed in the morning. Because they don't do it believingly. Exactly. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Unbelievers only sin in everything they do, whether they eat breakfast or whether they go to work or whether they have sex, they do it wrong, and therefore they dishonor God. So, isn't that opening up, supposedly, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a situation, a couple gets married, they're both not Christian, okay, one gets saved, comes to this understanding, supposed to the females, comes to this understanding that if they if they have sex, they're sinning. So the guy is not a Christian, but if he has sex, he's sinning. But well, if he doesn't have sex, he's sinning too. Right. So, but if she has sex with a non-believer, is she sinning? No. No, she's not. Okay. I don't think anything we've said would imply that. The, you all hear that? The, the wife who's a Christian, the husband who's not, it could be flip-flop. Uh, and they have sexual relations in marriage, is that sin for her, for the believer? No, it isn't. Not necessarily at all. Could be. I mean, she could do it for the wrong reason, sin. He, the, the, the instance he gave was where they got married as unbelievers and she got converted. I think it's wrong for a believer to marry an unbeliever if they're making that decision from the outset. Yes, they ought not to be unequally yoked together. And I don't know if that'll have a chance to come up anywhere else, but I think that's absolutely crucial. When we get, when we get to the question, what makes for a fulfilling sexual life in marriage? It's the last thing I hope we get a chance to talk about and get Noel in on this too. My first statement's gonna be, they both better be Christians. Because the sexual life then will always have, uh, less than it could be if they weren't so. But it's, okay. Sure, she should. Absolutely. First Peter three says. That she should submit herself to him and try to win him without a word. Marriage is permanent, whether it's Christian or non-Christian. Yes, but the Bible qualifies and makes clear that it means you shouldn't make that decision at the outset. Let them marry only in the Lord. It doesn't, does not say ever or hint that a marriage should be broken up afterwards because one of them gets converted, unless 
the unbelieving partner deserts and wants to break it off, then Paul says, okay, what can you do? You gotta let him go. Okay, I was reading a verse. I'm not sure where exactly it's found now, but it's the um, sanctification for the unbeliever is connected to the Now, could you clarify that more? Uh, How, who, yeah, the text is First Corinthians 7, and I'm not sure I know what it means, so I don't know if I can clarify it. Uh, how do you know, it says, believer, whether you will sanctify the unbeliever? 7.14, For the unbelieving husband is consecrated to his wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. I don't, I don't know what that consecration involves. Anybody here know? I can, I can guess. I can make guesses that uh, in a home where one partner is a believer and therefore has the Holy Spirit within her or him, that the God is in that home in a, in a unique way than if neither were Christians. And the influence of God is going to be felt in various ways. And that's a kind of consecration. That's a kind of sanctifying of the home unit. And, and Paul holds out the possibility that that could have a saving effect on the other partner. And therefore, do not think at the outset you should throw up hope or take off and go join yourself to a commune or something with believers. It's stay there. Do not sell God short if one becomes a believer. Now, um, I ask myself the question here, why is the gift of food or sex not for unbelievers? God didn't make food for unbelievers either. He didn't make anything for unbelievers. He did not intend that unbelievers be the... Uh, outworking of his good gifts, that the way they do it be the proper outworking. Why? Because they don't make the right use of it. Namely, they don't use it as an occasion for thanks to God. They don't relate to God in the act. They are not God conscious in the whole sphere of eating and sexual relations. It says, He created it to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. What truth? What's the truth that they need to know in order to make right use of this? I think it comes from your last Sunday's Sunday school lesson. That's the easiest place to put your finger on what the truth is that men hold down in unrighteousness and that they exchange for... What do you... What do you think the truth is that needs to be known and believed in order to make right use of sex? There'd be lots of different ways to put it. God is worthy of our thanks. Exactly. God is worthy of our thanks. And, and that'd be almost exactly the way Paul put it in Romans 1, 21, where he said the problem with human beings who have fallen is that they do not glorify God or thank him. See, God created human beings to thank him, and in thanking him, to glorify him. Therefore, his gifts to man, like the gift of sex, can only be received and used properly by those who know that truth. 
That's the way God is. He's worthy of thanks and glory. And therefore, in this event, as in all events in my life, he's the one to be glorified and thanked. This event of sexual intercourse is not an end in itself. It must be God-related if it's to be done right and to fulfill his purposes for it. If we don't believe that, then sex and food and everything else will be misused, loved wrongly, wrongly sought after. And this, to me, is the key issue. I read through the sentence that I wrote down. If we don't love God more than we love sexual satisfaction, we will always misuse sex, whether we commit adultery or fornication or not. This is the key issue, the hedonism issue. Where do we get our greatest delight? Speak up so they can hear over there. This sounds terribly bad, but I was just thinking, if God didn't create anything for us believers, don't we have sort of an anti-critical 666 thing going right now? I mean, believers are the only ones who should be able to have this song and that song and the other song, and if you don't believe it's the one true way for finish, you know? Well, it's been true from the very beginning, though. So it's it's not just characteristic of the end times. As soon as as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin, men were rapists on God's goodness. They were adulteresses. When James called these people adulteresses, he was simply naming man. Men are, and God, when he talked to Israel, he called them all the time. You've committed a divorce from me. You've gone after other gods. This has been the way it has been for fallen human beings like us ever since Adam and Eve. We have not had, as unbelievers, rightful claim on anything in the world. So Paul, when, when people get converted, what does he say to them? He says, don't boast over, get this right here. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Let no one boast of men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. When you become a child of the Creator, everything is yours. It's rightfully yours. Now, it's a wrong conclusion, though, to say, well, then, uh, I go next door to my house, the unbeliever next door, and push him out of the house and take his house. That does not follow because of lots of other things in Scripture. It is ours as as a bequest. In other words, when we die and when the new age comes, then the inheritance will be given. We receive it no other way than freely and mercifully from God as an inheritance. And in the new age, all will be ours in the sense that everything will exist perfectly for our benefit. Right now, things don't always work for our perfect benefit. For our benefit in the long run, but there's still pain and anxiety and lots of other things. Let me, let me keep asking questions to get through this text again and draw some conclusions. What does it mean to consecrate or sanctify here in this last verse? Um, verse 4 For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For then it is consecrated, or more literally, 
sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, I posed myself several questions when I got to that point. One was, well, if it was good, how can you sanctify it? Everything is good that God made. How can you sanctify it? What does that mean, that we should sanctify sex or food? Anybody? No? Okay, by using it in the right way. Would it be fair to say that even, even though all the gifts that God has made and given to us are good, unsullied as they come from God, we only wreck them, that they're good, that the way we sanctify them is by keeping them that way. Keeping them that way. We don't make them good. We don't make them holy. We keep them that way. And then it tells us two ways. By the word of God and prayer. Um, and that would mean, I think, that we view them in the light of what God says about them in his word and understand them in that light. And then the prayer here is probably a prayer of what? Thanksgiving. Right. So we understand sex as God understands it. We don't just look at it and say anything about it. We jolly well please or read a magazine to find out what it is. We look to God's word. It is kept holy by God's word and by thanksgiving. intercourse as the person-to-person relationship and there's a lot of sin involved in that because we're sinners and therefore to sanctify it would mean get it cleaned up gradually bring it into conformity to the way Christ wants it and I would agree if Paul has the whole the whole personal event in mind yes if we abstract out those the perfect gift which seems to be what he's talking about here he created everything and it is good verse 4 and therefore nothing is to be rejected he seems to be viewing sexual intercourse as a perfect and good gift that he's offering to a, a sinful man. Now, what's a sinful man supposed to do with a perfect gift? Keep it clean. Keep it beautiful. Keep it good. That's why I stress the keeping, but that what you said is true, too, if we just look at it from that different holistic angle. Um, now, what, I think one last question on this text. Does sexual desire threaten to diminish the joy we have in God. Are earthly pleasures, in general, a threat to delighting fully in God? What would be the answer to that? Okay, provided that. Does sexual desire threaten to diminish the joy we have in God? But if we don't make that provisional statement, Rick, wouldn't the answer have to be yes? In other words, it, it does seem to take people away from God uh, because they don't use it with thanksgiving. And, and I think we simply have to own up to the fact that all of God's good gifts are, are potential competitors with his love. 
That's what idolatry is. And that's what Romans 1 was all about, isn't it? The folly of exchanging the Creator for one of the things He created and fastening on it and saying, well, I like that, and not letting it be like a mirror to make our attention go back up to the really beautiful source. It's like looking at a great painting and not admiring in the least the skill that made it. I don't know what <coughs> artists would think about that, but God, as the artist of this world who created this panorama, intends for it to be a vehicle to take our affections through it and the joy it gives us up to God. And if our if our affections get stopped here on the horizontal plane, we become idolaters. And sex and food and all other joys take God's place and become idols. So I tried to write down three ways that that to keep that from happening. No no gift of his will diminish our love for him if and then three ifs. If we see it first as an expression of his love to us and a reflection of his character and delight in it for that. If we see it first, let's just focus on sexual desire now and the act of sexual intercourse as its proper fulfillment. If we see that as an expression of God's love to us, a gift of love, and as a reflection of his character. Now, I'm not going to go into that in detail, but I would commend that to you for your own thinking, Hoshavim reflection. Namely, I don't think God makes things up willy-nilly and throws them out. I think everything he makes reflects who he is. And therefore, there's something about sexual events that should communicate something to us about the nature of God. So, and, and we should love it for that, namely as a gift of, from God and a reflection of his character. And not just love it purely for the titillation that it can bring our body. Second, it won't compete with him or diminish our love for him if we use it in accordance with his commands and promises and principles in his word. Now, these are overlapping, as you can see, because the first one was one of those principles. If we use it in accordance with his word, I think that's what he meant when he said it's consecrated or sanctified by the word of God. And third, it won't diminish our love to him if we always let the pleasure it brings be a vehicle of praise and thanks to him. If we always let the pleasure it brings be a vehicle of praise and thanks to him. In other words, any time any pleasure happens to your body, let that event be a motorcycle to heaven. Boom! I'm off to God in thanks. As soon as I feel... That's why we pray at meals. Might be good to pray after a meal. It's a good meal. Because then, then all that good feeling that you got through all that good food when you were so hungry could just be sending, sending affections up to God. And God made it. He, he thought it worth the risk, evidently, to create potential competitors with his own love to give us those things. Now, that, that puzzles me in a way. I don't have a final answer to why he should choose to make a world like this with trees and snow and people with all different colors of hair and food with all different tastes and sex and all the organs and all the acts. 
that go with it. Why God made a world like that, I puzzle about. Why didn't he settle for angels? Nobody. Neat. No problem. No bodily problem. He, was, he just apparently didn't think he was done. And this is the one guess I have about it. God evidently thought that there were dimensions of his glory that could not be displayed unless he made a physical world, including body and feeling. And therefore, we ought to look hard and long at all the things he made in our own selves to see reflections of who he is. Because I think God created the world to display his glory. Jesus had to experience every affection that I experienced. When Hebrews says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, I think he means kinds of temptations, not every specific one. That has to be the case if we believe he's sinless, because he never experienced guilt. See? So you, you, you shot her down right there. Jesus never knew guilt. So if he never knew guilt, then he doesn't have to know some of the other things. Whether Jesus ever fell in love with anybody, who knows? There's certainly nothing sinful about falling in love with somebody. So, I mean, there's no point in speculating about it, because we have no evidence, I don't think. We brought this article up from Bowles, and we've been kind of passing around reading it, and it mentions the, the idea of the marriage relationship being a reflection of God and that eternity. You know, he, he experienced fellowship within himself, relationships within, within the Trinity itself, and that maybe he could actually experience the relationship of being married, and this may sound a little kinky, but the, the emotion of having, the pleasure of having, uh, I don't want to say sex with himself, but the, the idea of having that intimacy with himself in the Trinity, and the same, and we can experience that with our wife. So in a sense, he knows basically what it's like, like maybe to, to have that in that, that, that intimacy. So he wouldn't have to have a, a romantic relationship because he experiences that within the Trinity itself. Does that seem reasonable? With 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 limits, I <clears throat> I don't know what it's like to be in the Trinity, but I think. <laughs> If, if what I said earlier is true, that everything he made and created is a reflection of his character and his being, then yeah, there's something in the Trinitarian fellowship, something like marriage. Yeah. And then, uh, but beyond that, you know, how to put that into words and say what it is, uh, I don't know. 
Let me pose a new question now, and then move on. We've only got 15 minutes by my watch here, and, and there's some really nitty-gritty things that I, I think we should get to this morning, and then just keep going this afternoon. You are Toshavim, aliens, exiles, sojourners. Should, should those who are exiles in this world pursue or desire the satisfaction of sexual pleasure? If we're not at home in this world, but just a passing through, will we care about this world's pleasures? That's the question I like to try to think about with you now. In answer to that, that that's not an easy question. About sex or lots of other things. The Christian is in tension in this world. And here's the tension. God made this world and his creation is good, and he's our father. And we have a text that says he's given us everything to be received with thanksgiving. The other half is Satan is the god of this world, and it is fallen, and we are fallen. And everything is tinged with sin. So you've got those two realities. The world is God, he's our father, in a sense they're rightfully ours, in a sense, there's an at-homeness. But on the other hand, the world is under darkness. Satan is the god of this world. It and we are fallen and it's in the grip of sin and only begun to be redeemed. And those two fit together not very easily in any given life. We are in tension. So, and, and here's another way to look at it. The, the two hymn lines. This is my father's world. You know that hymn? And then you've got the, the other one from Martin Luther. Though this world with devil filled should threaten to undo us. This is my father's world. This world is filled with devils and threatens to undo us. That's the tension in which we live. We Now, that's true out there, but I want to stress that we are divided. My heart is divided. So Paul says again and again, put off the old man. Reckon as dead the old man. There's that old self and that new self, and there's a battle in me. There's the flesh and there's the spirit. And I, in my own self, am a divided person until I am perfectly redeemed. And the goal is to get the Holy Spirit to so dominate that we are mastered by him. So, in answer to my question then, I would say, no, we will not pursue sexual pleasure like one who is at home in this world order. We pursue holiness, nonconformity to this age, first of all. Next thing I would say is all God's good physical gifts are secondary, are of secondary interest. They are subordinate to the higher interest. And here I think Matthew 6 is, is Jesus could have not only included clothing and food, he could have added sex when he said, uh, seek first the kingdom, and these other things will be added. In other words, don't seek food first. Now, he, I don't think Jesus ever condemned. In fact, there are clear implications. He did just the opposite. Condemned working to, to make money to buy food. Nothing wrong with that. But he said, do not seek that first. Now, I think the same principle applies to sex. Seek the kingdom first, and sex will be added appropriately in this fallen age. 
within this overall concern for holiness, we may seek sexual satisfaction according to the word of God and with the prayer of thanksgiving. It falls in the same category with clothing and food and friendship and all the other pleasures that God has created on this earth. And I think if we maintain a sober assessment of our own fallenness and sinfulness, and a sober awareness that the God of this world is Satan and he wants to undo us, then we won't rank sex or eating or any other human pleasure, which in themselves are good, we won't rank them too highly, but we'll keep them properly under the main goal of seeking the kingdom and, and keeping ourselves pure and unspotted from sin in every area. Now, you want to raise a question about that before I pose the question, what is sanctified sex before marriage? That's what I think we're left with right now. We've talked a lot about, okay, sex is right if it's, if it's done right. If you keep the good gift pure and sanctified and thank God for it, then it's good. But now we haven't said anything about what that looks like before marriage or in marriage. And that's what we want to do next, unless you have a... Okay. Now, I think what I did here in preparation was uh, pose questions that came to my mind, and they may not at all be <coughs> your questions. Uh, I think some of them would be for sure, but not necessarily all of them. I've been married 12 years and uh, have three children, 35 years old, and it's been a long time since. I was in your shoes, and therefore I might not be asking the right questions at all. So that's why you must ask questions or write them down before this, this session this afternoon. But I'll tell you some of the things that I raised to answer for myself. And some of these are just setting parameters rather than giving uh, clear, positive advice. I think it gets more positive as we go along. First thing I asked myself was, does the New Testament condemn sexual intercourse before marriage? That's just a factual question about the New Testament. Um, does it rule it out, sexual intercourse before marriage? I thought I'd start with the most simple thing and then move into the more, the less easy things, the less things that fall short of sexual intercourse. Uh, I don't know if there's point in looking all these up. Maybe I could just list off and, and uh, point out the ones that are, I think are most important. The answer is yes, it does. It's the word parnaya, from which we get pornography, is the Greek word. It's translated three ways in the New Testament. Fornication sometimes, unchastity sometimes, immorality sometimes. You see that immorality is a very general word. Fornication generally means the practicing sexual intercourse before a person is married. Unchastity is also... Uh, usually refers to that. But the word pornaya uh, is very flexible because sometimes it refers to unfaithfulness in marriage. For example, in Matthew 5.32, Jesus says that uh, it's wrongful for a man to divorce his wife except for pornaya, which is usually translated unfaithfulness or immorality, which means pornaya sometimes means adultery. There's a different word for adultery, but this word is so broad that it can embrace immorality in marriage. That is, a wife or a husband who is unfaithful to her, to her partner uh, can be accused of 
committing pornaya. And yet, uh, in Matthew 15:19, it occurs beside and distinct from adultery. He says, out of the heart come all evil, like pornaya and adultery. So there, they're not the same. They are different. Now, in general, the New Testament is opposed to this parnaya, outside marriage or in marriage. And here are the, the texts. Galatians 5.19 is listed among the works of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12.21, Roman uncleanness, licentiousness. Ephesians 5.3, Colossians 3.5, Revelation 9.21. 1 Corinthians 10, 8. And there are other places, too. That's general opposition to immorality. Now, here are the texts where I would argue Paul makes it very clear that he is opposed, as an apostle, a representative of Christ, opposed to young people, before they get married, engaging in sexual intercourse. First Corinthians 7, 2. He says, Because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, there are lots of things we could ask about that, and we will come back to that text this afternoon, I think. But what he, the necessary implication of that verse is that Paul's thinking about sex before marriage, isn't it? Because of the temptation to immorality, each of you should get married. If you cannot control that desire, get married. Which means he's against fulfilling that desire before you get married. Is that right? Then look at the end of the chapter. Now, 1 Corinthians 7.36. Now, this is a really interesting text because in the last generation or so, the argument has arisen... Well, yes, it's wrong to play around, willy-nilly. Well, sex here with this person, here with this person, here with this person. <laughs> but if you settle the, the, with one person, and you kind of get engaged and make a commitment, then it's different. Now, look what Paul says to that situation in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-six. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, fiancé, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in, this, in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So that he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. So we can talk more later about Paul's view of marriage there. It looks like it's second rate. But the only point I want to get from that text now is, here's a couple who's engaged. They're, she's his betrothed. you got two possibilities. One, he is so aflame with passion that he must, he must have gratification. In that case, Paul says, get married. Which means he does not entertain it as a legitimate option that they can live together as betrothed and have that sexual satisfaction. 
even though they were quite isolated out. In fact, it's this very strange relationship here that they decide, if you can decide not to get married and keep her as your betrothed and go ahead and kind of live a platonic friend type relationship, that'd be great. But, no sex. His virgin's daughter. So it sounds like a father. Yes, that's what that's Now let's see if that fits the context. Evidently, evidently the word used it uh, need not imply that they are um, related as engaged, but can be related as. Uh, father and daughter. Now, so it's a contextual question, and the RSV has made the decision that this is a, um, an engaged couple. If anyone thinks, read me the whole context from here so I can hear it. But if any man thinks that he is asking
My watch says 12.15, Tom. Um, so we should stop and go to lunch here. I'll, I'll read, maybe I'll read the questions that I have that we're going to talk about, and then if they don't, if they don't hit you where you're at, you write some new ones for me. My next question is, why does God only approve of sex in marriage? Why did he design it that way? 